Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hi, dear listeners. I just want to remind you that about a month and a half ago, Undisclosed began its Patreon page. We now have our second episode up. It's a bonus episode where Susan Collin and I talk about the new season of Serial. We go over the first two episodes and we're going to continue to follow it. And in our first episode, we covered the case of Curtis Flowers, Estate versus Curtis Flowers, which was featured in the second season of In the Dark, an award-winning podcast. So check out these episodes, sign up to become a patron today of Undisclosed in order to support our work uh, and also to get some great content. And every month, at least, if not more frequently, we'll be dropping bonus episodes and doing maybe some updates uh, on other cases that we have been covering the last few years. To sign up and become a patron for as little as $5 a month, all you have to do is go to www.patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash undisclosed pod. Once again, that's patreon.com slash undisclosed pod. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. Hi, and welcome to this week's addendum. This is Rabia, and I will be hosting uh, the addendum, and I'm going to do my best. It's my first time hosting an addendum, but I'm no John Cryer, so (laughs) I want everybody to bear with me, Um, but it shouldn't be too bad because I've got a couple of great folks on uh, this week. We've got Susan Simpson with us. Hey, Susan. Hey, Rabia. And I'm excited to welcome a new guest, uh, Jason Moon, to the podcast. I've I've been following his work uh, for the last uh, month or so, and Jason is a reporter at the New Hampshire Public Radio. He is a host of a new podcast called Bear Brook, uh, which is so good. Um, and Bear Brook examines a cold case. Anybody, if you like Undisclosed, you're going to love Bear Brook. It examines a cold case out of rural New Hampshire, and it's a true crime story. It was like unsolved for a long time. I The series is not over, so we'll find out, but it all began in the 80s when four bodies were found inside of two barrels, right? Inside uh, the state park. Um, So welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for joining us on the addendum this week. Thanks so much for having me and for your kind review of of Bear Brook. I really did love it. I I know you've got three episodes out. Um, I have a long drive today. I'm saving the second two. So I listened to the first one and I was like, I was hooked. Good. Uh, good. So let let me ask you, how did did you, so you're a reporter at uh, New Hampshire Public Radio. Is crime your beat? Is that what you've always done? No, not at all. In fact, uh, when I first came across this story, I was covering education. Um, So it was a little bit outside of that. Um, And I just came across it sort of by happenstance um, and and sort of the, you know, the kind of the least remarkable way for a story to start for a reporter, which is that I went to a press conference and they uh, had, this was in 2015 and uh, New Hampshire State Police had just finished some new, um, exciting, cutting-edge forensic science on the remains of the victims, which you'll hear about Mm. in episode three. And that was just the first time I ever heard about the case. And the details, just the basic facts of the case, 
were really, you know, gripping. You, basically, we have um, four people, a woman and three female children found oh. dead in the woods in New Hampshire, and we still don't know who they are. And that that fact just kind of boggles the imagination. But we know a lot more now than we have for almost entire case existence. That's true. We are learning now, um, and hopefully we'll learn a lot more before too long. I'm almost but, scared to talk because I've loved this case for so long and followed it. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a forensic angle here, right? Because this case is not just about this case. It has implications in terms of how forensics have been developed in investigations, right? That's right. And yeah, there are there are actually two different what I find to be very interesting forensic science techniques that have been used on the case. The first was um, stable isotope testing, which is what they were showing off in 2015. And this is where they can look at the isotopes in bones and, and hair of unidentified victims and get, you know, pretty good guesses about the types of environments they lived in. So like how far from the coast they lived, which oh, continent in some cases. Um, it's a technique that came from uh, like archaeology and paleontology and has only been recently been adapted for criminal forensics. Uh, and then the other forensic angle for the story is um, what's been in the news a lot more uh, lately, which is uh, genetic genealogy. And right. the Bear Brook case was sort of depending on how you count it, perhaps the first case to ever have a suspect ID'd uh, through the use of genetic genealogy, which was a huge breakthrough. And it directly inspired the detectives working on the Golden State Killer case. So they actually, through some of the weird circumstances of the story, um, the detectives working on that case overlapped with some of the detectives working on this case. And they knew each other personally. And so when they heard that... Oh, really? All acro uh, uh, from across the continent? Yeah, yeah. It's a complicated story. There's uh, a couple of cases in California which connect to the Bear Brook murders in New Hampshire and... And so anyways, the detective working in the Golden State killer case in California heard about this new technique they had used. They basically hired a, well, not hired, they didn't pay her. They received the services of a genetic genealogist who was able to uh, identify a suspect in the case after, after all these years. And ever since that, and, and then once the Golden State killer, the suspected Golden State killer was arrested, police departments all across the country have been racing to their nearest genealogist to uh, to try to replicate this. And so it's it's sort of an exciting time if you're in that world. And if you are, you know, a police department with a cold case and you've got a DNA sample that you've never been able to find a match for, now there's there's new hope. On the other hand, it's it's raised some yes, red flags ethical. for people who are not so, <laughs> maybe concerns, not so thrilled. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And this is going to be the brave new frontier of this. And I'm, uh, I don't know what the good answer is. No one does yet, but very deep concerns about where this is all heading. But you do have to make the argument that, I mean, they're using databases in which people have volunteered their DNA to be submitted but to. Like did they know, know how it would be used? No. The vast majority mm -hmm. of them had no idea what would be used. That's true. Yeah, I think that's where that's the, the question lies. It's in that interesting gray area where it's not quite the same as like surreptitious DNA harvesting where you, you left behind your coffee cup and the police picked it up because mm -hmm. you have put it online in a DNA database. But on the other hand, you probably put it online because you thought, oh, maybe I'll find a cousin or something or find out my ethnic background. And now it's being used for something, you know, Potentially different. your whole life. Yeah, you're not a criminal. Be, right. <laughs> yeah. Depending, it, someone told me, yeah, be careful who you're related to. <laughs> so.
Right, right, right. Well, how long did you spend investing in the case before, you know, you decided to turn into a podcast? And why did you turn into a podcast? Well, I started on it in late 2015 uh, at that press conference. And at first, it was just another, you know, news story for me. I filed something really short for our air here in New Hampshire. Uh, and then I, I talked to a couple of um, characters that you'll hear in the podcast. And I just thought there's just so much here. I don't know if I could fit it all into what we usually do on the radio. And so I sort of had that idea that it could be a podcast, that it could be something long form. Uh, and so I started working on it as sort of just a side project, sort of around and in between my normal education stories. But in the midst of that is when there was, you know, uh, for the first time in 30 some years, a real break in the case while I was reporting yeah. on it. So the story started to kind of grow, you know, right before my eyes. And so there was more reporting to do. And so um, it's only been the last maybe four months. Uh, uh, they've allowed me to just switch to being full time on this story so that I could um, oh, that's fantastic. finally wrap it up. Okay. But um, yeah, it's been a long it's been a long journey for sure. Well, we are going to join you on this journey. Like I said, it's uh, I was hooked from the first episode and I can't wait to hear the rest. And unlike Susan, I wasn't familiar with the story. I actually, I'd never heard the story before. So um, great job. So. All right. So let's get into um, the past couple weeks of episodes, episode 11 and 12 uh, in the Dennis Perry case, uh, starting with last week's episode, which is about the witnesses at the crime scene and how many of them made it to trial. Right. Uh, so Susan, you want to set it up for us a little bit? Well, they all, but uh, maybe at the trial, if you mean like actually testified. Actually testifying, yeah. Well, there were, let's say four actually went on the stand. But at the time of trial, uh, or in time of this litigation, all but one of the witnesses was still living. One died just before the trial began. Um, but the rest were still surviving at the time. Um, in the year since, most have passed away. But basically only two of them Benzola Williams and Cora Fisher were of real significance to the case. But there were how many other women were there? There were eight other women, right? There were or, so or that seven night, other women. That night at the church, there were in total 10 women, one man, Harold Swain, and then the seven, right. 600-year-old girl, um, the daughter of Gwen Owens. And that means that there were nine women, but eight of whom the police knew of at the time, um, plus the child. And right. most their um, accounts were just considered not important, not useful. Um, I'm, I still don't even know who all was spoken to by the reopened investigation because the only ones that Bundy recalls now is just those two, Cora and Venzola. Oh. It is my favorite time of the year because it is autumn. Finally, finally. I love this season because I love to get all snuggled up in nice, warm wraps and sweaters and my favorite socks. I love socks. I love good, comfy, cozy socks that I wear in the house, in my bed, on the sofa, everywhere I go. And that is why I love Bombas because they are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. Bombas has totally re-engineered socks, okay? Bombas spent two years of research and development that led to lots of improvements on the sock design because believe me, you can improve on the sock design and on the performance and on the comfort. They have an arch support system. I actually love this. It's like a little band that goes around the middle of your foot. It supports your arch. I wear their athletic socks for that specific feature uh, when I'm working out and it really makes a difference. It gives you extra support. It feels like a little hug around your foot. Uh, it's got a cushioned footbed. They're reinforced. These socks 
don't have any seams on the toes, so there's no more annoying bump on that toe. They do not fall down. <laughs> they call it stay up technology. 133 tension levels were tested to find the perfect tension that's comfortable, stays in place, and is not too loose. Uh, also, they don't leave a mark. You take them off after hours and there's no little ridge all around your ankle. Bomba socks are made of super soft cotton that you will never want to take off. And not only do they keep your feet warm, but they will warm your heart because for every single pair you buy, Bombas will donate a pair. Socks, by the way, are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters, but of course, you can't donate used socks. That's why Bombas donates a brand new pair of socks for every single pair they sell, and to date, they have sold and donated over 9 million pairs. And you can, by the way, check with Bombas to see if they donate to a shelter near you. Now, our listeners get 20% off your first order if you go to bombas.com slash undisclosed. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com and you will get 20% off your first order. Once again, check it out at bombas.com slash undisclosed and use the promo code undisclosed. Do not miss out on this offer. This is the season. Stock up on your socks. They don't get better than Bombas. Once again, that's bombas.com slash undisclosed and use the code undisclosed for 20% off your first order. So can you talk a little bit about um, the significance of the statement we think the child made in this case? Because it seemed like there was some kind of interference by the parents to prevent her from making a statement or the father, at least. That's just Bundy. That's no, there's no evidence for that beyond what Bundy told me. Like when the episode Bundy says that the reason Gwen Owens is one of the, she was in her thirties, one of the two younger uh, witnesses in the case. And she was one of the four or five that got a really good look at the guy. And by really good, I mean really good by the standards of this case. Um, and she helped do the composite image. And for some reason she just wasn't, part of the reopened case and according to Bundy that's because she would not cooperate she was so afraid like all the women according to now Bundy's theory of the case that all the women knew who did this they all knew who killed the Swains because this guy lived in the neighborhood and Waverly's not that big so Dennis Perry they might not know him well or know him by name but they'd probably know him by sight so his theory is that they knew who it was all along and this whole time for 15 years until trial they were just so scared of being killed themselves they never told anyone until Bundy came along and through his magic, got them to talk. However, in Bundy's theory, Gwen Owens has always been too afraid and still was still too afraid then. So she got herself out of the case, got herself out of being a witness and her daughter out of being a witness by making up a story about how the killer had red hair and flames coming out of his eyes. I was just so shocked to hear that so few of the witnesses had been talked to, but I was also really surprised to hear that it was so hard to f- just find out who the police had talked to. Maybe I missed this, but is there a reason that that wasn't more thoroughly documented? It seems like a pretty basic staple of investigations is writing down the names of witnesses you spoke to, right? In this investigation, there's, so there's the initial investigation from back in the day, which has tons of documents, a lot of them lost, but they documented everything they did. Then there's the reopened investigation by Bundy. And in the course of his, you know, three-year almost investigation, he produced a total of six pages um, wow. which were done six months into the case that summarized his past six months of work. So he took no contemporaneous notes. He took nothing. All we have is the summaries he made months later from all of his big interviews. And we don't know anything beyond that. Wow. So 
<laughs> there's a line. So in the DA's file, there's a memo from one of the DA's investigators talking to the prosecutor. And she has this little like parenthetical comment and says, it'd be nice if they wrote this stuff down. I'm like, yes. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it would yeah. be very nice. <laughs> and they didn't. So there is no documentation at all that Bundy spoke to Gwen Owens. Gwen Owens recalled talking to someone and Bundy recalled trying to talk to her. So it's clear there was an interview, I guess. But that's all we know. And his his memory of the her I don't I don't know what to make of it. I, he my impression is that he may have honestly thought that because Gwen Owens' story did not point at Dennis, he thought that she was lying to get out of the case. And that's because mm-hmm. he was so convinced it was Dennis Perry that if a witness is telling him it's not Dennis Perry or telling him facts that don't point at Dennis Perry, then that means the witness is lying to you. Mm-hmm. I would say Bundy didn't maybe believe um, Gwen Owens, but it also seemed like some of the other w- women didn't believe one another. Um, now, this episode was a little bit different than our normal episodes in that you pretty much narrated the entire thing. So I actually heard the episode after it was done. <laughs> and I heard this along with our listeners. Uh, and I thought it was interesting because these ladies kept throwing, kind of throwing shade at each other. They, and, they uh, were throwing shade, but in a very delicate way. Not, they uh-huh. did not want to name anyone they were throwing shade at. They were very beating around the bush, um, very circumspect about it. They just wanted to say like, you know, some stuff got exaggerated, some stuff wasn't right, some facts came out that, didn't, that weren't true, so be careful what you're listening to. But they they were very reluctant to to name names. Yeah, I was curious that about w- that too. Sorry to jump in, but um, it sounded no, like you were kind of getting some of that sort of between the lines or maybe after they asked you to turn the tape recorder off. Can you add any more to that, sort of how you were, you know, what things they were saying or what signals they were sending that let you know that they there was some skepticism amongst the, in between the, the witnesses? I mean, well, for, <laughs> eventually, for one of the witnesses, Miss Lavinia, she did come out and just say it. She, you know, put it delicately, she, was, she admitted who she was talking about. Um, but for Gwen Owens, who did not want to, you know, like, again, Cora Fisher passed away many years ago, so no one wants to speak ill of the dead. No one wants to speak ill of people they know. No one wants to, like, you know, insult their neighbors um, to a reporter. But they wanted to point out that maybe not everything in the official stories was correct and suggested that there was possible motivation or some of the ladies may have been trying to get attention a little bit or trying to just tell a more dramatic story or, you know, I'd heard similar things from the detectives as well. So Butch Kennedy from the initial investigation, he told him something similar. He was like, Cora Fisher, like, you know, poor, like, poor thing. Like she just, she kind of wanted to be at the center. was his impression of what, what she was doing. Oh. Not in a malicious way, but like she just went through something horrible, and I kind of get that. Like you can tell from the early news reports, she was kind of reacting in a way that was more. The other women seemed to have shut down. They wouldn't talk about it, not even one another. Cora Fisher would talk about it. She like went to the hospital multiple times for nervous condition from this in the days after, um, and she's the one whose story all along has been very dramatic. She's the one who claims she was shot at by the killer mm-hmm. when that does not seem to have happened. I'm sure there's interesting, uh, fascinating psychology behind that sort of thing. I wonder um, what a psychologist would have to say about, you know, witness testimony after a traumatic event like this and how it can be influenced by the trauma of the event itself. Yeah. That and, and also I think there are person. I mean, I, I know personalities like this in my own life. I mean, where <laughs> That's what I was going to say, right? I, like, I don't want to name like names. <laughs> but I know people who would be like, he definitely, he definitely tried, he came here to try to kill me. I mean, like there are people like that who would just kind of want to center themselves. Um, and not in a malicious but, way or anything. They're not trying to mess with the investigation. It's nothing like that. It's just they're making the story about them. Was there ever any suggestion that 
some of the witnesses might not be so reliable because they were like things have been suggested to them by others, like, you know, either the police or somebody else or. Yes, I think that's definitely the case here. Um, I guess one, I don't want to say advantage, but one sort of, I guess, benefit of them not talking about it much is that there is less contamination than you expect for 33 years onward. Um, but in the initial days, they did talk and discuss among themselves, but it's mostly disagree. They're, I know Gwen Owens especially was frustrated because she's like, I felt very sure what I saw, but you know, everyone else is very sure too. So <laughs> obviously we can't all be right. Can we talk a little bit about what Gwen Owens saw? I mean, she apparently had one of the best views of the shooter and what, how was that? Like, where was she positioned? She was with all the rest, but she looked back and she stayed a bit longer. So I think some, you can see that like in this group of 10 women, there's a range of reactions. Some of them like hear the scuffle and like a couple just, you know, they get, they get out of there. Some wait until there's more of a fight and some don't run until they hear the gunshots. And some are confused and don't even run initially until they're like, oh my God, that was a gunshot. Get the hell out. Um, Gwen Owens saw the guy before anything started. She got a glimpse of him, saw him. And then she solved the fight itself. So we've got these women sitting here in a church, and you've got two double doors on either side going towards the front door in the vestibule. And there's, you know, three three rows of pews, and they're all in the center pew. Some are towards the middle, some are to the side. And they look back, and when people go through the door, these double doors just start swinging back and forth. So they kind of get like this sort of almost like a flip book view of what's happening mm-hmm. on their side. Like, doors flip open, they see something. Doors flip back, they see something. And so Gwen Owen sees him initially poke his head in and said, I want to talk to him, points at Harold. And then she sees flashes of this fight between this guy and Harold Swain, which not, uh, Marjorie Moore is the only other woman who re- saw that clearly. And she passed away, th- was the first one to pass away. So of the surviving victims, basically from the 90s onwards, only Gwen Owens really got a good glimpse of this fight. And her, what she remembers is, you know, actually pretty close to what everyone else, not everyone else, because everyone else had different, it, it's close to sort of the central position of what people saw. Um, her daughter did say that she saw red hair, but that's, again, six, seven-year-old girl. I don't mm-hmm. know what to make of it, but I don't put much weight on it either. And Gwen Owens saw blonde hair, that she's sure of. And what struck me the most from talking to her was the way she put it, that he looked kind of nerdy. Like, Do you think that was because of glasses? No, I don't think so necessarily. Um, she just said he like looked kind of nerdy. And the, to me, that invokes a very certain kind of image of a guy that does not look threatening, doesn't look like a you know a scary redneck. Um, it's someone who looked a little more, it, it, you know, it's not some scary vagrant redneck. That would have given her a different impression. The fact that she emotionally remembers this guy looking kind of nerdy suggests to me he looks much more innocuous. And not in a way that was just a threat. She was never shown Dennis Perry's photo during the investigation, right? No, she'd never even seen him. She had never seen him. Yeah. Did she go to the trial? Did she? She did, but she was sequestered, so she couldn't leave that room. Got it. So she's never okay. seen him until I I was there, and she asked me for a photo, and I'm like, oh, I don't, I can't, sorry. <laughs> and I tried to make excuses, but it did not work. Um, so I showed her a photo. Would you mind, could you talk through a bit more about, because I was interested in that moment and you're thinking about, should I, shouldn't I show her the photo? Can you just kind of talk through that again? <laughs> well, I knew I shouldn't. I didn't want, that's why I didn't have a photo of Dennis on me. Because I, yeah. you know, this whole case is based upon a white woman going around to all these church ladies and being right. like, hey, is this the guy that killed him? What do you think? And since they had never seen a photo of him before, like to me, it, it, 
I mean, I just didn't even cross my mind to show him a photo of that. Like, if the investigators or, you know, disappearance attorneys wanted to get statements from these women, then yes, that's the time you carefully put together some photo lineups and do something like that. That's mm. not, given how much, like, witness contamination has happened from external investigators in this case, I did not want to add to that in any mm. way, fashion, or form. So we're sitting there talking, and she just says, I want to see a photo of Dennis Perry. Because I asked her if she'd ever seen it. She's like, no, but I'd like to. And she kept asking. And Gwen Owens is a, I really liked her. She I mean, she was really, like, you know, like, funny and smart and, like, very focused. And, you know, she's not going <laughs> to, she knew I could show her a photo, which I almost couldn't because my phone was, like, out of range. So <laughs> I almost truthfully couldn't show her one. Um and she just kept asking, and I was like, okay, fine, I've got one photo. And she was, she made it clear that she was going to find it one way or another. Because I've mentioned this thing, like, <laughs> online now. So I'm like, well, she's going to go see it. Uh, so I pulled it up, and I was not liking it at all. I still don't like it, but like that. Was, was it an older picture, or was it, it a more was. recent picture? Literally, only one I had is from a, an email that GIP had sent out that day of Dennis Perry. And it showed him graduating from his GED. And he's much older, you know. I think he's in his 50s at that point. So it does probably look different and she kind of just looked at it for a while and like all she said is like he looks pretty tall and she was shocked about him hearing this 5'10 because that was to her far too tall to be the guy she saw how tall do we know do we know how tall the victim was um i've seen multiple listings from him between 5'10 and 6 feet i think he's probably closer to 6 but there are some uh documents that list 5'10 but this guy, okay. the, the guy that Gwen Owen saw uh, fighting with him was substantially smaller in her memory. Right. And so she would have been able to, even at a quick glance, kind of seeing the difference in their size, mm -hmm. um, it that, seems. Yeah, that's been thought to me, too. Because, like, even the face you can't see, that's one thing you should at least be able to be pretty reliable about in memory is, you know, if two guys are fighting. What do you make of, like, these witness discrepancies? Like, which of the witnesses do you find more reliable. I thought it was interesting that Gwen Owens, I mean, after all these years, her memory seems pretty, I mean, she seems pretty confident of what she remembers. She does too, but you can tell she has doubts because I was telling her some about the case because she was asking me a lot of questions as well. And I'm telling her most of this stuff in the public domain just to try and minimize what I'm telling her. And I mentioned like there, she's like, was there ever DNA? I'm like, yeah, there were these hairs. And she's like, were they blonde? I'm like, yes. And she gets kind of a smug look and she was like, I was right about having blonde hair, wasn't I? I'm like, yep, you kind of were. <laughs> so she, it's the fact that she felt vindicated to me was interesting because she didn't feel certain. It's not like she knew for a fact, but she felt vindicated when she learned that there was evidence supporting the fact she'd seen blonde hair and glasses on the guy. The only witness that I don't think is, I consider kind of you know, possibly unreliable is Cora Fisher. I think the rest are more or less telling how they remember. And I just don't find it that weird. They remember different things. I mean, that's that's normal. That's what you'd expect to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you think, Jason? Like in a case with that many witnesses, how yeah, many different you'd pictures expect you're going to get? The, yeah, quite a right. You'd expect that that sort of range of sketches. I would imagine um, that you got. But I'm curious to know what was it about Cora's testimony in particular that you found sort of excludes her from that normal range of testimony that you might get from a witness. Well, the first and foremost thing is her story about being shot at. <laughs> when there's when there's only five casings found in the vestibule, and we know those shots are accounted for, and there's no bullet hole in the back of the church. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, from the start, I just you read her statements from back in the from the '85 investigation, and the other woman had disagreements, and that's why there's theories that there might be two people involved. One sees black hair, one sees blonde hair. Who knows? But 
Quora's like, he didn't have no big nose. He didn't have no small nose. He didn't have no, like, long hair. He didn't have no short hair. He didn't have, like, his hair was, like, blackish brownish. His hair, like, everything was, like, he wasn't tall. He wasn't small. He wasn't big. He wasn't little. Mm. Her whole, like, description of this guy is, like, he wasn't extremes. He was just in the middle. And it was vague enough to be a lot of different people. I mean, it could. Right? It, it, it was anyone that like, was not too tall or too small or too. Yeah. Right. And for the individual composites, Cora's to me, people disagree. So I won't want to say it's clearly an outlier, but to me, it's of the four composites. Hers is the, I mean, like Deputy Kennedy said, Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> right. And she so, has just like a strange ways of phrasing things and strange descriptions of events, which is why I think when a lot of people have read her statements and she has this one reference to a time that this woman comes in and like crawls around and rescues her and pulls her into like a closet to save her or something. Everyone thinks it's just some fantasy story and didn't pay much attention to it because it makes no sense. And it's kind of just one of Cora's things. Was she found in the closet? No. No. <laughs> okay. Um, well, she, we know that the she had a name though. She used a name for this woman. And that's the first kind of clue. I was like, wait, why is she talking about some name we've never seen anywhere else? And that's this last witness you found, right? It was well in the in the transcripts. Yeah, I don't know if it's the transcriber that wrote the name down wrong or if she said it wrong, but it's it's close to the name of Miss Lavinia. So, and tell us about her now. Um, I mean, you heard the phone call on the episode. Yeah. I did not really think that she would be a witness in the case. I just wanted to find out how the heck her name kept appearing on these places, or if that it was, was even her shot. name. Yeah, it's pretty amazing the way that unraveled. Yeah, well, I was completely, uh, I usually try and be more prepared than that. I'm like, well, I don't know what to do now because I was not. Like, <laughs> it was like an offhand call. I was like checking off my to-do list, like going down a million things. I'm like, let's just like get this done. Were you there? Yeah, and, and she's like, yes. Yeah. Like, oh, I should have questions now. Give me a second. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you, you got started down that rabbit hole, that you found a whole new witness, but that the first clue that there was one came from what might be the least reliable witness. It's sort of interesting <laughs> irony there. And I ignored it because it was least reliable. Like to me, the most logical explanation was that Cora was just talking, but I also wanted to know why she was make. I mean, it's also significant that she's claiming this woman helped her, you know, crawled around and helped her and escape or whatever. Like, why did she use that name? Mm -hmm. Refresh my memory. Miss Lavinia, the police actually never spoke to her, right? The, she remembers clearly one officer talking to her, and she thinks probably in the days after. It okay. was a very quick conversation. She doesn't know who it was. Just someone talked to her, got her name and details, wrote them down, and went on. But didn't take a statement from her? Not really. No, nothing in detail. Okay. So the police dropped the ball with Lavinia, with Gwen Owens, but what about defense counsel? I mean, defense counsel didn't even talk to Gwen Owens, the known witness who helped with the composite. So it's, I mean, to me, one of the more heartbreaking parts is reading Karen Perry's emails to the defense counsel. Right. And she's like, like, here's the stuff I want you to do. Go talk to Gwen Owens. And they don't. And if they had, they would have, it would have, she was right. She was a hundred percent right. If they had presented these witnesses, right, that would have really, you know, contradicted um, the state's witnesses. Do you think that would have really affected the outcome of the trial? Would that have been strong enough? I don't know, but I think it would have mattered a lot because Gwen Owens will would have told the jury that the composite image that, that they were so focused on, to her, didn't look like a killer. 
And that never came out. That was not part of anything. And she also would have, I'm sure under oath, she would have named Cora Fisher as the person whose testimony perhaps should not be as relied on as closely. Was this issue brought up uh, in an ineffective assistance claim at some point? He can't have that. Oh, he can't. No, that's right. There are, that's no, right. There are no IAC he, claims. He waived wow. his appeal, right? His appeal yeah. was waived. That's, wow. Okay. So I'm just curious to hear like what y'all thought about uh, Lavinia and her memories of the events. I thought she sounded... Uh, you know, reasonable, plausible, believable. It's still still shocking to think that she had talked to police. It was just one conversation that wasn't recorded in any any way that's recoverable today. Um, I would think I was just distracted by that fact the whole time that all these years later, with over 30 years later, you can find new witnesses in a, in a case like this. That's just... And she's the second one, too. There was another one that right. paperwork about him. Uh, that was Paul Robertson from who was driving past the church that night. No one had ever talked to him either. Um, and part of the problem is that because of all the lost paperwork and because it's been so long, there's stuff investigators might have done that we, they can't recall now. And there's no paperwork to show what they did. Mm-hmm. So it's it's theoretically possible there was more detailed work on like all the stuff that seems like gaps in the case. It's just it's gone, and the investigators can't recall every witness they talked to this many years on. Well, if they don't record did it, ever, it's, it's just well, as they good did as record it, but they lost the recordings. Right, mm-hmm. right. But as soon as that's as soon as the record's gone, it, it's as if it never even happened. Mm-hmm. Did you speak to Bundy after you spoke to Miss Lavinia? I did. Did you he talk to him recall, about it? He claimed. Well, I, he says he does not recall her. Does not remember talking to her, but he didn't recall talking to Gwen Owens either when I spoke to him. When I asked who he'd spoken to, all he recalled is Zanzola and Cora Fisher. But what we do know is because of that one sheet of paper we have, that at some point, at some date, some unknown officer wrote down Lavinia's name. Mm-hmm. So there, I mean, yes, there was little trace of her in the record, but there was a trace, which mm-hmm. means some officer at some point knew about her. And I don't know how or why or when. And I don't know how to address that. Every officer I've spoken to about it has denied it's his handwriting. So. Oh, interesting. I mean, we're talking about church ladies, right? I mean, church ladies talk to one another, right? There's, <laughs> they a do. Group they don't know about this. That's what I thought that, they would do. I'm kind of shocked that somebody like uh, Lavinia or Gwen, like they wouldn't have spoken to others and said, no, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And then reached out themselves to say that there's a discrepancy in like what the police are, are being told about, you know, the suspect. Um, they, they did. Like, Gwen Owens would say that, like, this is not what I thought. I, she, that's why she, this, well, that's why I think Bundy says that she wouldn't cooperate because the description she was giving contradicted what other ladies said. So she was saying, here's what I saw. It doesn't match what the other ladies saw. I don't think they're right. That's why he thought that she was uncooperative. Did Lavinia ever seen a picture of Dennis Perry? She was, yeah, she was at trial. She was at the trial. Okay. She sat through it. She was sitting there and like all the other ladies were sequestered and she's there in the room because somehow. It, oh, that's right. It, right. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. That's Sorry, like my a brain's a little fried last couple days. You're right. Like, yeah. That she's sitting in the, in the courtroom and, and could be, you know, could have altered the outcome. But, you know, she was feet away from where. That's uh, like she could have spoken. To, yeah, she could have just talked to the defense. I mean, she could she couldn't have spoken to the attorney right then and there. Why would like, she talk to the defense attorney? She thinks he's guilty. Oh right, mm-hmm. yeah, that's true. She does think he's guilty. Yeah, Forgot she's about kind him. of confused yeah. about how she's how he's guilty, but she has no like. She just assumes he's she's he's guilty. Why would she try and help him? I mean, she hears Cora's testimony read out in court, and it's clear she had like a wait what reaction, but she didn't. Who's she going to talk to about it? 
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so let's move on to this week's episode. Um, And this week's episode was a lot about Dennis Perry himself as it relates to what the state at some point theorized was a motive for the crime, that this was a violent racist crime. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about like where, was that a theory that this kind of pulled out of nowhere? Was it based on anything other than the the fact that defendants white and the victims are black, Beaver. other than that? Jane Beaver, purely Jane Beaver. And this episode was, part of it's that since we've not been able to record Dennis, um, that leaves his voice out of the show and, the only way to sort of convey a sense of who he is as a person is through those who know him. On the other hand, I didn't want to make this, there's like a line here to walk. Um, One thing I was not interested in doing is a show that's about like, you know, he couldn't have done it. such a good person. How could he done it? Mm -hmm. Because that's not evidence from that angle. To me, that's meaningless. But on the other, I do think it's significant that based on what the state alleges happens here, it does seem reasonable to think there should be evidence supporting that, he is that kind of person. And everywhere I looked, I found none. So that's a line for me I was trying to walk in this case, is to not present this episode as like, oh, look, Dennis Perry's such a great person. He couldn't have done shit. Because that's not how it works. Right, but that makes well, sense you to must- me if, if they brought it up, if the prosecution is going to bring that up as a as a possible motive, then, yeah, I think you have to address it. And yeah, I had to explain. It's hard was, to do so, though. That's the thing. Like, how do I prove Dennis Perry isn't a racist? Like, <laughs> I can't. And let's kind of, yeah. I didn't want to leave it unaddressed because he is a white guy from the South and it is not unreasonable to think like he could easily be a racist. Like why? Like that's totally possible. It wouldn't change in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Like you get like, there's a lot of racist white guys in the South. So like the fact, if he had been racist, I wouldn't consider that just positive evidence by any stretch of the imagination. But in this case, there's nothing about Dennis Perry's life that I could find that could suggest to me that he was racist and quite the opposite. Or violent, right? Or violent. There's not a single, I couldn't find anyone that remembered him acting violently in any way. Which, you know, that's a little, po- It's to me it's possibly relevant, but a little bit less important because people do sometimes act, I mean, it's not unheard of. I think it's more unusual, right? I mean, It like, is. It is, yeah. And what about his time in prison? Has he, do you know, kind of like what his record's been like in prison? Um, yeah, and there's nothing like, huge standing out there's a few like drs on there from stuff Little fractions yeah yeah like i'm sure i don't think actually this has a cell phone issue but it seems like everyone we deal with has a cell phone <laughs> issue at some point <laughs> yeah there's no uh, evidence that he he's had any violent altercations in prison like it doesn't seem like he well, has a history not, of violence not, not from him he's been the victim of violence he was stabbed oh. at one point oh. he's oh. been victimized but there's no evidence that he's ever assaulted someone that's really terrible uh, let's talk about uh, Dennis's wives, Karen Perry and Brenda Perry. When he was uh, arrested, he was married to Karen, correct? Mm-hmm. And she she seemed to have been like a real driving force, I mean, throughout his defense, throughout the trial. I mean, she was just on it. She was a real advocate for him. Yeah, I, I think it's 
based from have, knowing Karen and uh, Brenda, I kind of wonder if Dennis has a type. Because <laughs> they're both, like, very strong, like, fiercely loving, fiercely, like, advocating for him type of people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not He's shrinking relative by any means. Yeah, no, like, they both similar, and both of them loved him a lot, and, like, were also very organized and very, like, I'm not going to put your life up for risk. I'm not going to put your life in the hands of others. I mean, yes, I have to to some degree, but I'm going to be here monitoring every step of the way. And it, they did so in a productive, valuable way. They weren't interfering. And I'm sure the attorneys may have felt that way at times, but, you know, Karen was right. They were wrong about who they should talk to. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say at some point, Karen and Dennis divorced, right? After, I don't know how very long he had after. served. Pretty shortly after he was yeah, uh, It was sentenced. the first the first visit after his conviction. He told oh. her he wanted a divorce. For her sake. Yeah. I mean, Mike, I don't, I mean, this is purely me speculating. It seems to me what happened is just depression or just hopelessness. Mm. And he seems to have shut himself off after his conviction. Right. Very How hard. long had they been married at that point? Uh, 13 years. Oh, wow. that's pretty devastating. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, I mean, of... Adnan also had gotten married in prison. When he was moved to a supermax facility, he then told his wife that we need to... I mean, he was despondent. He was just hopeless. He's like, you need to move on and have a life. It's I'm never getting out of here. So I can see that happening. But how did he meet Brenda? I mean, Brenda found him. Um, and, you know, I kind of okay. want to like, explain like, this whole story. It's, not so, even, it's not, to me, part of the, the case. It's not that mm-hmm. relevant. But, like, it's a sad interesting story of a man who like gets convicted and pushes everyone away from a wife who loved him deeply and he told her he wanted to make sure she had a life still and then he goes on and gets remarried and you know it's sort of a sad tension there not like planned and you know it's kind of i don't want to say awkward it's just sad yeah i was wondering about that about that too um because it seemed that the way that they when he first was convicted that that they had a very um you know, mature and and uh, sort of almost clinical discussion about what this was going to mean for their marriage. And this is the best thing. And let's do that. And I was sort of like, wow, that's that was very um, sort of clinical cerebral. Yeah. yeah. But then it's that image of that scene is somewhat complicated by the fact that he does remarry. I mean, not to, I don't, you know, want to go too far down the road of judging his you know, romantic um, life here, but it just, yeah, I, there's a tension there somewhere that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And then, so that happens, and then six years later, Brenda comes along. He didn't seek her out. She was, she got, what happened, she got divorced, and she's like, you know, I had a crush on Dennis Perry once. Let's go find him. Oh, he's in prison. <laughs> yes. that's not gonna oh, so she me. didn't know. She, she didn't know he knew. was in prison. She kind of knew. She okay. sort of back of her mind. She hadn't really paid attention to any of it. Like, she knew of it. She just wasn't really focused on it. So she, like, gets her divorce and, like, not within a year, she's, like, looking up Dennis Perry and trying to see how she can go see him again. And they start talking, and it goes from there. And to me, it's just, I can see from Dennis, like, he, he was alone. He was not looking for a relationship. And then one comes along. Why would you push that away? I mean, he did it once before. Maybe he regrets that. I've not talked to him about it. I get limited time with him. So when I, when I see Dennis Perry, it's like... I'm the way that comes in, asks like five million questions about the case, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and then that's all I have time for. I, I can understand <laughs> that. I mean, look, with Karen, it's not, she had not signed up to be married to a man who's going to spend his life in prison, right? I mean, I can understand. Like, I think if that's that was his calculation, it was really kind of him to say, this is not what you signed up for, right? Uh, but Brenda sought him out, knew the situation and accepted it. And I, 
and yeah, I mean, I, I can see why he would be interested in this relationship versus having Karen stuck in something that she didn't anticipate for her yeah, life. That's a good point. Yeah. And I yeah. gotta say, I think it was, I don't know, Karen's like, her, I mean, she had to, re, she rebuilt her whole life. Her whole life is different now in every way. She lost literally everything from scratch. Oh. Her job fired her. They didn't tell, they told her they were having layoffs, or, but you know, her of course belief is that it was because Dennis was convicted, um, which I don't think is unreasonable at all. That sounds from the timing what would have happened. Um, and she's, you know, she has rebuilt. She has, and her life is in Jacksonville. And is she still in touch with Dennis? No, no, no. She, I mean, she. They said when I talked to him, passed messages along for him, but they're not in touch anymore. She stayed in touch with his mother for a few years, mm-hmm. um, but they weren't in touch. And like she said on the episode, like she, you know, she was surprised. She's like, wait, really? But she wasn't hurt by it. She wasn't upset by it. She just, she's like, if it's good for him, then good. Mm-hmm. All right, so. Let's talk a little bit about your investigation into the allegations that this was a racist, a racially motivated crime and mm-hmm. how you tried to figure out that it was not. <laughs> I mean, I don't want say like it. Well, again, that does, this doesn't just or that, that he didn't have it. Right. He didn't. He might not have been motivated racially. Yeah. I mean, like one of the things I asked all the witnesses, you knew Dennis, like, are there any episodes in his life that are violent? Any episodes that are like, right, like, you know, go through like events in his life that are discreet and like break it down and be like, is there any how have you seen him act before just to get a sense of it? And everyone just so adamantly rejected the idea of him being racist, like not even like considering it. Like there was not even like a hesitation, not even like a, you know, it's, it's the South. What do you expect? Kind of thing. It was like, like, nope, 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 no. That was his friend, Clayton Tomlinson. who just like full out, like no way, no oh, how. Yeah. And, you know, even the people in Waverly I spoke to, like, you know, African-American people that thought he was very guilty who had known him. They're like, uh, no, I never saw any racism from him. Like that. Didn't notice that part, but I'm sure he did it. <laughs> well, then what about Gregory Trent Ruffner? What was his relationship to Dennis? And Not a clue. I, I assume I, he was in Glenn County Detention Center um, at approximate times that Dennis was there. So it's possible they interacted at some point. Maybe. I, I could not find anything to prove it. I still don't even know if they were ever actually in the same room at the same time. They may not have been. They may have just – we know that Ruffner saw – Dennis Perry, an article on him, and that's what prompted him to write to the DA. But that doesn't necessarily mean he actually saw Dennis or talked to him beforehand. Mm. And Ruffner was given a polygraph test about his statement about yeah. Dennis? and he passed it. And he passed it. What does that, what does that mean? <laughs> Polygraphs are bullshit, and they're meaningless. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> was there any evidence that he was getting some kind of a deal for this, or any leniency? or, or oh, what, Why would it. he do He, he was seeking, seeking it. it. He, I mean, okay. he was writing, he was like writing to Bundy, like, sir, can you help me? If you can help me, please help me out now, please. <laughs> I need some help really bad. Can you help me? I'll help you if you help me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he had a long record. He was in and out of jail. It's possible that, and, you know, this may not have been the only time he offered information in exchange for, you know, a lenient sentence. Because he definitely had a 10-year sentence and he was out within like, has a record again within a year. I still don't know what happened there. So in the Bear Brook case, there ultimately is a guy who's identified, um, and he's done time in prison as well. Was there ever a suggestion of anyone being an informant there? No. In fact, that's one of the guys more chilling details to me about the case is that uh, he never, as far as we can tell, he never talked to anybody about some of the things he did. And 
He died in prison uh, serving a sentence for a murder of a woman in Richmond, California. And he died before we knew that he was connected to the Bear Brook murders, before we knew that he was connected to possibly a handful of other murders from around the country. He was interrogated after that conviction in prison about a kidnapping that he had done. And he claimed to not really know. He, he sort of obscured. He said, oh, well, you know, I was I drank a lot. I was an alcoholic. A lot of my memory is not so great. Um, so he wouldn't even really admit to things that police were quite sure he had done. So that's I think that's pretty unusual. You know, he didn't brag about it. I mean, I talked to a prosecutor here in New Hampshire about that, and he was very struck by that fact that he never bragged about the case about his murders to others in prison. He never tried to cut a deal with prosecutors. I mean, he had all this information about so many other cases that have been are probably like the most important or one of the most important cold cases for departments all around the country. He could have tried Talked to use that up, yeah. to mm. get us some kind of deal. And he never did. Not a great deal, but like he could have gotten some kind of, you know, right. Maybe better treatment or something. Um, and he, he just never did. And oh, the prosecutor here in New Hampshire just said that uh, he was the real deal, that he just kept it all inside. And whatever he remembered about those situations, that he just sort of kept it for his own enjoyment and um, didn't need to share it. And that, to me, is also, is sure. also strikes me as just, you know, hard to understand what kind of person could do that, you know. Well, according to Ruffner, um, Dennis was the other kind of person. Who just, you know, randomly Very spouts good. out <laughs> to acquaintances. Um, I really wish I could have talked to Ruffner. I, we tried a lot. And I was, like, convinced. I'm like, you know what? I can outlast you. I'm going to get you eventually. You're going to have to talk to me for a little bit. And it turns out I don't Ru- get a chance. Is Ruffner incarcerated right now? Oh, yeah. He got picked up for a lot of things. You know, okay. the house I was at, I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't have gone there so much. Because apparently there was quite a struggle. He tried to get a cop's gun. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, that was the most recent charge that that was like like a week ago. <laughs> oh my god! That's why I finally I was hoping I'd be able to find him, but like I was after that I'm like, well, it's done. <laughs> my chances ended. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things Ruffner said that Perry said that Dennis said was that that the next chance he got to kill a black guy, he'd take it. But you know, Dennis was a cellmate, bunkmate, whatever, with John Lawrence, who was black, and I don't know how, how long were they together in how long did they share a cell. They were in Autry State Prison together. I believe it was six years. They actually had the same cell. Wow. So they were besties. Yeah, no, like John Lawrence is like in many ways, he knows Dennis Perry as like well as his wives do. Maybe better, probably better in some ways. Probably better, yeah. You lived in that such uh, intimate quarters with somebody of that long. And he he completely rejects this site. He never saw anything in Dennis Perry that would indicate, yeah, that he had any kind of uh, racial animus towards black people. I mean, I asked him at one point, right. like, if he got angry or, like, upset, would he ever, like, you know, use racist language? Like, I could see something happen, like, in a fight or something. Or, in, I mean, prison is not known for making people less racist. Right. So maybe, like, and he's just said, no, I've never heard him say anything like that at all. Um, in many prisons, you have actually, you actually have white nationalist gangs. I mean, this is the thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so if that was how he was inclined, you know, he could have always found his people there. So, and then of course there is the guy that was in jail with Dennis Perry at the time that Ruffner was making these comments. And to me, what's most striking is that we have this guy Ruffner telling police 
you know, Dennis Perry said he's going to, next chance he gets, he's going to kill a black person. And he passed the polygraph and they believe him. And yet at that time, Dennis Perry has a, he has a cellmate that's a black man and they do nothing to interfere, even though supposedly believing that he is going to kill a black man. And, and he that he already has killed two black people. Yeah. And that he, and he has a chance right then and there and the police do nothing to interfere. And to me, that are striking. Either they are extremely careless or else they didn't believe Ruffner. Hmm. I'm going with the second one. <laughs> well, I don't know. because So Bundy's a big believer in polygraphs, and he passed it. Hmm. Or maybe he thought, this is so terrible. Maybe he thought, well, if he hurts him, then that's more evidence, right? Yeah, that's true. That's hmm. another he hurts another one way more black person. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how twisted these people might have been, but. We have a few social media questions that uh, we'll get Susan to answer for us. So let's start uh, with a question from a listener at Christy1z. And the question is, has the car the officer saw the night of the shooting that was swerving all over the place ever been compared with the other suspects Susan found in the case or their known associates? Well, to clarify, I believe he's talking about Paul Robertson, who who had been a deputy, but not at the time of the murders. I think he was doing IT. And the car he saw was something like a Pontiac Catalina but not necessarily Pontiac Catalina. And given how vague the other reports are from some of the witnesses, it's possible that, like, I mean, I don't think it's impossible that other witnesses could have seen a Pontiac Catalina too when they call it a duster, but who knows. Um, there is, in fact, one other suspect in the case that had a Pontiac Catalina. It's interesting. I don't know if it goes much farther than that. But it was dark. You know, the guy was not paying that close attention to, like, the car. He was just, you know, looking for signs of DUI mostly. So... It's interesting. It's something I think about, but I'm not sure we can hang our hats on this being a Pontiac Catalina or a duster or anything like that. Um, the next question comes from Rosalie Fry, and she asks, how is it that Cora Fisher is so sure that a man who, it is well established, did not drive or own a car, was repeatedly parked in front of her house? Yeah, that's what I meant about Cora's stories, <laughs> her dramatic details and whatnot. Cora Fisher remembers that the guy that killed Swain's would come to her house and park outside and just watch her. Let her know okay. I'm here. And then, you know, presumably I could kill you if you say anything, so keep quiet. And she believes that was Dennis Perry or his twin. About how old was Cora at the time that this happened? Late 50s, maybe. Okay. So she was like 70s by the time of trial. But yeah, there's no evidence. Like, there's no evidence she ever told him about this. No evidence she ever reported it. It's just something she told Bundy. Mm. And again, Dennis Perry. Well, he did by the time... Eventually, he did, eventually he did stop being a slacker. He got a car and a job, and did drive himself places. So, he could have had a car at some point. He did have cars later on in his life, but there's no. And they police did check to see if they ever had the duster. Like she said, they couldn't find any evidence of it. Right. Uh, next question comes from listener Clever Whatever. If they ever found evidence that led to another suspect and convicted that person, would Dennis Perry go free? Mm, doesn't work that okay. Or since he gave up his right to appeal, would they? Could they have two people in prison for the same crime? There's nothing stopping it. Dennis Perry can't go free under the current legal situation. To put it another way, there is possibility here that there were two people involved. So if they convicted his accomplice, whoever they decided his accomplice was, that wouldn't necessarily be a contradiction, really, I guess. So it's totally possible that that could happen. But if they wanted to prosecute someone as the sole killer in the case and somehow could succeed with Dennis Perry still in prison, they could legally. There's nothing to block it. All that would stop it is a jury. They could also, though, I mean, like in a, I mean, if you have a district attorney that's got some sense, I mean, say, well, okay, we're gonna we're gonna reopen this and drop charges against Dennis, like even though he doesn't have a right to appeal, if they find evidence against another suspect who they consider to be the main suspect, maybe the only suspect, 
then they could just let them go. They don't have to. Theoretically, right. I mean, there's there is all that um, possibility. But that's very theoretical, and they. It's very theoretical. Yeah. Um, it doesn't happen very, very often, thing. and in this case, when the guy has no leverage to bring him up himself, it's even harder. Like it's not like they're going to be able to save themselves from embarrassment because he can't really embarrass them because they can't file a motion. He can't do anything. They have no. It's like a you know like a civil case you know settlement discussion. Like if both sides have some kind of leverage, you can get somewhere. If one side has all the leverage, one side has none. Well, there's not going to be a deal. Are there any other options for Dennis besides the hoping and relying on the goodwill of prosecutors to come? Get a podcast to reinvestigate and see what you can find. <laughs> That's kind of. But it. even he, then, but who are you trying to convince? On, right. Um, you know, we're trying to find what we can find, and it's possible that nothing. We, it's possible we could find who the real killer was and prove it with DNA evidence, and it wouldn't matter. But that's the reality of it. We could know exactly who killed the Swains with no doubt in the world. Um, the DNA could be matched up. There could be someone confessed to the crime, and it wouldn't matter. Unless the prosecutor decides to reopen the case. Yeah. Oh. Does that jurisdiction have a conviction integrity unit? <laughs> no. No. See, this is why I believe that, that we need a revolution across the country in every DA's office, uh, and that's the way you got to approach some of these things. You got to get the right people level. in. Who'll... Yeah, yeah. Right that's people in to do though. the right things. I'm not sure. It's like small counties like this. I, I kind of question whether a commission integrity unit would be effective or could be independent enough to be effective. If it was state level, I'd have. It more could be state level. It. Yeah, I think didn't North Carolina one one of the one of the Carolinas had started like a, a state level, some kind of innocence review commission. I don't know where it went and how it unfolded but certainly it's an option but um all right well thanks so much for um updating us and for answering all the questions and jason can you tell us first of all where our listeners can find and listen to the bearbrook podcast yes you can find it at bearbrookpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts apple podcasts or pocket casts or you know the other umpteen podcast apps out there how long is the series by the way uh, we're planning six episodes, but there could be more. You can't do that in only six episodes. Make it longer. <laughs> Susan's like, you need 25 at least. No, don't make it six. That's the worst case I've heard all day. No, seriously, well, this is a crazy story that y'all aren't, aren't going to want to miss. And I'm going to lobby for them to make it longer because... Put Susan on it. She'll add 10 episodes. Like, yeah. um, It's Jason, a crazy where, story. Where <laughs> Jason, where can listeners find you online? I'm on Twitter at Jason Moon NHPR. And um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's it. Great. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this week. And we will oh, continue to follow the story. Thanks for listening to this week's Undisclosed Addendum. I'd like to thank the following people. Hannah McCarthy for audio production. Mital Telhan, our executive producer. As always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram using the handle at UndisclosedPod.